0: Hey, before we get into the episode, I want to make sure you guys have the chance to register for free for Starting Small Summit 2024. We have a very exciting panel this year with the founder of ButcherBox, Sofa Mattresses, and online creator Lexi Hensler, the founder of Hugs. Registration is completely free, and you can find more on our website or ideaweek.com. and I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Mike Swiguero, CEO and founder of ButcherBox. Founded in 2015, ButcherBox began with a simple mission to make high-quality meat more accessible to all. The company soon discovered that meant more than delivering 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate free and sustainable source seafood. It meant rethinking the country's food system. As you just heard, Mike's joining us on April 25th at the Starting Small Summit, and I hope to see you there. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small today I'm joined by Mike Salguero of Butcher box. Mike thank you so much for joining me today.
1: yeah thanks for, thanks for having me
0: Of course so I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Um, where did you grow up and what do you say your childhood was like?
1: So I grew up uh, in western Massachusetts in a really small farm community of about 2,500 people. I ended up there uh, I was born in Paraguay um, my mother is Colombian, my father's Uruguayan um, my mother's half Colombian half New Englander. My parents got divorced when I was four months old and, uh, my mom moved up to Western mass, um, to be near her grandparents who were like kind of the only stable people at that time, people who like all of her other siblings and stuff were in school and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I grew up there, youngest of four, single mother, um, not a lot of like structure, uh, not a lot of rules. Um, uh, definitely at an early age figured out that I needed to like make money if I wanted to spend money. Um, always dreamed about that pair of Air Jordans that never came, uh, (laughs) you know, had a paper route at the age of 10. Wow. Um, and just basically I very early on, I had the model of my uncle who was an entrepreneur and my grandfather who was an entrepreneur and really wanted to fall in their footsteps Mm. and in many ways, like wanted to like work with them, wanted to like prove myself that I was good enough that someday maybe they'd hire me for For what they were doing. Um, and so I, you know, worked hard, tried to be an entrepreneur, ended up going to boarding school for high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, my, my, my mom, uh, I don't wanna say she forced it, but she kind of like, uh, the school I was in was not very rigorous and, um, she could tell that I was a pretty smart, gifted kid. Um, and so, yeah, so I went to boarding school, uh, never really felt like a fit in there. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went to Boston to go to college and immediately like it was much easier school is much easier than boarding school yeah and so i decided to make the city of boston my education and just ran around with this crowd of uh, other guys who were going to school and working full-time and so throughout my college experience i not only worked but i also held jobs both as a magician as a hot dog vendor at Fenway park um uh, as a waiter, as a chef, like a whole bunch of different things, just trying to hustle.
0: For sure. I'd love to dive into this sector of, first of all, like what were you studying during this time? And I, I know, I mean, your mind had to be super busy. I mean, you always had jobs studying, but you wanted to aspire like your grandfather and uncle too. So how did your entrepreneurial like pursuits play into this role in here?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, when I was in, so I went to school at Boston university, I started in the business school, um for undergrad and within a year uh i guess a year and a half i left the business school and just went to study whatever i wanted to Mm -hmm. um and mainly it was because i Disagreed with the way they were teaching business. This was um, two, like 1999 and 2000. Okay. And at the time, it was like entrepreneurship wasn't cool. Like it wasn't something that you taught at school. It was more yeah. like here's how you get on the fast track to go work at Bear Stearns. <laughs> and if you're not, if you don't have an internship at Morgan Stanley this summer, like forget it. You're not going to succeed in this world. Yeah. And I just didn't think that that was like my path. I never thought that was my path. I wanted to go to business school because I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and um, I just decided to go learn other stuff. Um, so I ended up ta- getting, like, an international relations um, degree. Okay. I studied abroad in Mongolia. I backpacked through Ecuador by myself. Wow. Um, and at, at that point, it was more like being entrepreneurial and pulling up, like, life experiences versus being entrepreneurial, like, trying to make money. Yeah. As soon as I got out of school. So I graduated early. Three and a half years, I graduated. Okay. And then um, I started working in real estate, and that's when, like, the real entrepreneurial fire was stoked, and I just started working for myself, Incredible, with the exception of a three-year block where I decided I didn't know enough and I needed to go get a real, a real job, um, which was a whole other journey um, <laughs> that I regret because uh, at the time, there just weren't that many resources for entrepreneurs who wanted to be entrepreneurs, Yeah, at mean, least I didn't find them.
0: I feel like that's an important piece I would love to touch on if you're able to. Um, like, What was that job? What were you doing in that, that three-year period?
1: Uh, so, uh, okay. So I was a real estate guy. I was doing rentals and sales. And yeah. then, um, and then th- basically the season is January to September that first year. Um, I did, I crushed it. Like I, I was brand new, but I just like, I sold a ton. I think I made like $80,000, which is more money than I had made wow. first year out of school working nine months. And like, it's all kind of, uh, it's all like uh 1099 income. That's
0: incredible at that time too. Yeah.
1: And so I was like, sweet. I know how to make money. This is great. Um, And then I decided that in September I was going to stop being a real estate guy and I was going to go live with my father who I didn't know at all. So I went to Uruguay and basically lived with my dad for three months. Mm. I wanted to like learn who this man was who was 50% of me. Yeah. The next year I started back up in January and I ran until like July. And in July um, I had launched this t-shirt. This is like 2004. Okay. I had lo- I, I had created this T-shirt that said Buck Fush on it. I actually have one on my bookshelf. I can pull it up, but uh, it said B- Buck Fish on it. Uh, so F Bush. Um, yeah. And I made it as a joke. And at the time, I was like selling T-shirts. Uh, I, I I like for St. Patrick's Day. I printed a Boston T-shirt and sold these shamrock T-shirts and sold two hundred of them. So I created this T-shirt. I sold it outside uh, at like at different events. And it was selling like hotcakes. So mm. I decided to like leave the real estate thing and just go sell T-shirts. Um, and between July and the election in November, I sold like 17,000 T-shirts, <laughs> uh, which was like wild. It was so fun. Wow. It, was, it was such a fun time. Um, that's a lot of T-shirts, by the way. That is. like a ton of T-shirts. Um, more than a ton, actually. Uh so after that, um, I decided like I was left with like inventory and really no cash to speak of. I was like, where would all the money go? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need to like go learn how like I just need to like professionalize myself. Yeah. And so like, I couldn't find a job like no one would hire me. I um, went to the Career Center at BU and they were like, we can't help you. And I was like, okay, I'll never give you a dime. And I don't think any yeah. of your audience should either um yeah and, and then <laughs> i uh i basically like found somebody introduced me to somebody i ended up going on 85 inter- informational interviews um between like um, october of 23 and when f- someone finally took a chance on me which was like may of the next year and i was sleeping mm-hmm. on couches uh working odd jobs and just pounding the pavement and networking and so I have a lot. I, I I learned I learned the hard way, being told yeah. no, I, um, having to sell myself. A lot of my jobs were sales, so, so I knew how to sell myself. Um, but just this like constant, relentless like I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna make it happen. If somebody tells me no, that's one less person before I can like get, accomplish what I need to. And yeah. I just took like an entrepreneurial, like like dogged, persistent approach to getting a job. And then I yeah. got there, and I'm like. Oh shit, like this isn't what I was looking for. Um, (laughs) My my job was in uh, real estate development. I was um, like a project manager for real estate development projects. It was great, I learned Excel. Like I think real estate's a great place to learn how like businesses are valued because there's expenses and it's it's a lot easier than a business to like understand the inner workings of like the ROI and the IRR and all these things. So I did that for three years. Um, I like to say that I was rotting under the fluorescent lights. (laughs) I went to school at Babson to get my MBA because the company I was working for, um, paid for me to go to school. Uh, so I got my MBA and, um, and then I tried, this was like, you know, got, got to the downturn of, of yeah, uh, or 2008, sorry. So the, the real estate market like collapsed. Um, the company I was working for residential real estate developer was just like, you know, letting go of people left and right. And uh, I tried really hard to get let go. They had a couple of la- rounds of layoffs and I did not get laid off in the first round, but on the, in the second round I did. And I was trying hard mm. to get laid off because what I wanted to do was to collect unemployment for sure and start a company. And uh, that is what happened. I um, was laid off. Wow. My buddy and I had been trying for like six months to find something, uh, some sort of company to start or to buy. And just like all those stars aligned, I got laid off. I actually was sleeping on his couch uh, for two weeks. And um, wow. during that time, a deal that I had tried to put together uh, came together. And that became our first company, which was
0: custommade.com. Wow. So this is such a good segue, like 2008. And so high risk tolerance you guys had in 2008, but also it sounded like you didn't have much to lose. But... What did that kind of purchase and what did that decision look like for you guys? Custom made You mean to buy the company? To buy the company, yeah. What was the current yeah, state of so, the company?
1: Okay. So one of the things that I think is like there's there's a misconception out there about entrepreneurs and how much risk they're willing to take. So what did yeah. my what did my co-founder and I really do? We both were working at well, I guess I was no. When we put when we started talking to the guy, we were both working and then I got laid off. But um mm. ultimately We, there was this website, it was called CustomMade.com. It was owned by a woodworker. It made $35,000 a year. And we, we offered him, you know, I'd written to him six months prior and was like, would you ever sell? And he said, finally, he was like, I'll sell. We offered him four times revenue. So $140,000. We didn't have $140,000. Um, and so what we did is we gave him a check for $5,000. That was the down payment. And we had 90 days of due diligence and 30 days to close. And what we did, we were like, we don't really have that much to diligence here because we're going to like completely change everything. So what we did is we went and raised money. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, what did we risk? We risk $5,000. Um, and, you know, it was like our shot. It was, uh, that's still a lot of money, but it was like, hey, uh, we think this is real. Um, and so all we're really doing is making a bet on our ability to pound the pavement and raise money. And yeah. um, we went out and raised five hundred thousand dollars in a convertible. Um, and over the course of the next eight years, we raised about thirty million dollars of financing from Wow Google Ventures and first round capital and Accomplice and uh, a bunch of others. Wow. Um, yeah. So, quite the ride. Um, and and yeah. again, like my experience of being told no by all the informational interviews that I did came came up again as I um, and also. By the way, that experience, like I sold um, food at Fenway Park as like a walking vendor and like nothing's yeah. worse than the beginning of April selling Diet Coke and the bleachers. Like no one buys that. Everyone <laughs> says no to that too. So I learned very yeah. early, like everyone's going to say no. You just have to like keep hustling, right? Just if you, if you run faster, yeah. you'll sell more. So I went from that informational interviews, trying to raise my first round. It was like, no, no, no. And then really when we tried to raise our first institutional round, which was in 2011. So kind of three years into the business.
0: Yeah. Everybody said no.
1: I mean, we called it the summer Mm -hmm. of no, it was like woodworker website. Like, hell no, I'm not, I'm not interested in this. And ultimately we were able to, um, find somebody at Google who believed in what we were doing. And once Mm -hmm. he said I'm in everybody, everybody
0: collapsed in the, the, Everyone interesting. was interesting. So, I mean, an individual can shift the entire perspective, but what do you think resulted in that? Did you guys trans transition oh, in the business transform? Dude, yeah, no, well, it's crazy. What is it's, that? It's nuts. It's
1: such a great story. Um, it's crazy. So, so everyone said no, everyone said no. and yeah. it, what we built is like custom was a listing service at the time. It was like a yellow pages for woodworkers who would put up their mm-hmm. whole portfolio. And the reason why we liked it is when you talk to these makers, they're like, I get all my business from that website and I pay $35 a year for a subscription. And we're like, this is like a shack in Manhattan. These people are bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of projects and they're paying $35. So what we're going to do is we're going to overhaul the website. At the time, it was like you had to email the, the webmaster to like up, upload your stuff. So we were going to like bring it into you know 2008. And, yeah. uh, and then like expand it from just woodworking to like other things that could be custom, like jewelry and glasswork and all this other stuff. That was the in- mm-hmm. initial premise. Um, and we ran with that for the first three years and it was a subscription business. And it was pretty good. We were almost profitable. Then we decided mm-hmm. to raise money. And when we went out to raise money, people were like, we're not investing in a woodworker listing service. Like hell no. I was in a meeting with a, uh, a venture capitalist with my co-founder, Seth, and we're sitting there and mm-hmm. we had built this feature called the job board where people can post like something that they're interested in getting built. Like I live in New York. I want this bookshelf and then makers could bid on it. And I'm like, pull up the job okay. board. We pulled up the job board and we made it real time so you could see the jobs coming in. And because we mm-hmm. owned custom made and had been around since 1996, I got a ton of inbound traffic. So the job yeah. orders that were coming in, the people that were interested in getting a job done, it was like, boom, boom, boom. And I'm like, all we have to do is stand in between those transactions and we can be the largest marketplace for anything custom. As yeah. soon as I said the word marketplace, like literally, mm-hmm. they're like, marketplace, you could be the next, uh, what was it? You could be the next Airbnb. I was like, yeah. And then everyone was in. <laughs> And the reason why is because in 2011, when we were raising money, Airbnb had just gotten hot, Uber had gotten hot, and like everyone was looking, you know, VCs in many ways are pattern matchers. Everyone was looking for marketplaces. And because we said the word marketplace, it was like, oh yeah, I'm into that. Um, And that, you know, I think important in business, important when you're starting a company and even when you're, you know, starting small or you're raising money is to tune into the signals because sometimes the signals are so tiny it's just like somebody being like marketplace oh and you're like holy shit like that's it and then like yeah. that was it now the problem was yeah. that we then went and raised you know by the end of it so we raised 2 million dollars 6 months later we raised 4 million dollars a year later we raised 16 million dollars and the marketplace mm. didn't really work like as a as a business concept it was actually a bit flawed because these custom transactions like the makers aren't very good at communicating online the customer like really wants to talk to someone we're trying to stand in between and take a fee and like mm-hmm. it just it, it actually didn't work uh, <laughs> but because we had done such a good job of selling this concept of marketplace uh we could not unwind it and one of the challenges like the, so the company ended up going under uh, my co-founder okay. pivoted it out, uh, geniusly, and now it, it custom made.com still runs. It's a custom jewelry site for engagement rings and other stuff where they can make you something like way higher quality and they make yeah. every piece like it's them. It's not like we're going to connect you with a maker who makes it. It's like custom made is going to help you through the process. And that was the right business to run is like where we help you with the process versus like we introduce you to a maker, but At the time, like what I was passionate about was helping people making a living doing what they love and helping like I've always been there's always been a thread of mission in everything I've done where I'm like trying to start a movement, change the way people think, like revolutionize an industry, you know, started with like t-shirts and you know uh anti-george bush and like trying to like and it 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 took off like people would wear this i'd 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 go out and i'd see people wearing their shirts like oh wow like started something and then it turned into like getting your furniture made by a local maker instead of getting it from pottery barn and then that turned into Mm -hmm. what i'm doing now which is like you know there's a better way to eat meat and like uh we can bring that to the world in a way that scales um, and can be accessible.
0: I love it. So let's get into the transition This is around 2015. Yep. Was this directly after your departure with uh, custom made? <laughs> what, what does that transition look like for you? Yeah. Personally? So in
1: 2014 in September of 2014, my co-founder was like, I was the CEO of the company and he was like the board chair and also the COO. And so in 2014, you know, six years into the business, he's like, look, I feel like it's the fourth quarter and I haven't been able to be the the quarterback yet. I want to be the quarterback. I want to be CEO. And I was like, Mm. okay. So he took over as CEO in September of 2014. And at that time, like the company, it was clear that the company was like going under. Um, And so I was like, what, you know, kind of like, poking around working, but also like what else, what, what else is out there? What's all, what else is happening? And was thinking about a few ideas, starting a few companies and whatever. And really what I wanted to do was to create a, uh, a hobby, like a side hustle that would cover my nut mm. so that I could then go do whatever I want. That was the dream, like cover your nut and then you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And it's like every, you know, small entrepreneurs dream, uh, or big entrepreneurs dream. And Mm -hmm. so uh, I I I couldn't figure out like, you know, the whole there's a whole story around like how I decided upon Butcher Box and like we were trying to eat healthy and I started buying meat and I started selling it to my friends because we were buying too much meat. And one of my buddies Mm -hmm. was like, this would be so much easier if it was delivered to my house. And I was like, oh, yeah, how how would I deliver it to your house? And then I just tried to figure out how to deliver it to your house. And I couldn't I couldn't figure it out. Until I like, met the former head of operations of Omaha Steaks, who I hunted down on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. and uh, he opened some doors. And so my plan was to, you know, run custom-made into the ground, which happened on Memorial Day weekend of 2015. And then I was going to, like, okay. take 100 days off and, like, go do a silent meditation and just chill out, <laughs> and, like, hang out with my newborn daughter and all this other stuff. This other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> what ended up happening is I took the weekend off. And I started ButcherBox. Um, wow. So Memorial Day weekend was a long weekend. Uh, we went to Colorado <laughs> and then got back on Monday night. And on Tuesday morning, um, I had hired an intern out of Babson, this guy Bobby. Um, okay. And Bobby was at my doorstep at 830 in the morning. And he's like, <laughs> all right, what are we doing? And I'm like, "Uh." Eh. <laughs> I guess we'll go find a coffee shop because I have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> Welcome. Wow. Um, and that was another thing is like when I started Butcher Box, I had just run like I, I still I thought it was going to be a hobby. I didn't expect it to be a big business. But I knew that if yeah. I was the person that was going to have to do all the work, like it just wouldn't go anywhere because I, I had I had led other people for seven years. And I just like yeah. I just didn't think that I, I would have it in me. Like if it was just me. I'm not sure ButcherBox would have ever started. So I found this $11 Man. an hour intern out of you know, the entrepreneurial college in Boston and decided to pay him <laughs> uh, to get the thing going. And I decided I was going to put $10,000 wow. $10, of my own money in, and I wasn't going to raise money, and I was just going to prove. Well, for one, I had a small vision, but I also got, yeah. had a chip on my shoulder about how venture capital isn't the only way to capitalize a company, and I was going to prove that you could do it differently.
0: And that's what we set out mm, to prove. Love it. Love it. So Bobby shows up day one. What, what does that meeting look like? What does his duties look like? It has like an intern to really scale ButcherBox today. Yeah. I mean, so
1: the first, I mean, literally the first half of the day was like figuring out where, where we were going to work. Um, but, uh, the, the first thing was so, so I, at that point I knew, um, I, Uh, had made contact with the Omaha steaks guy who had put me in touch with a, uh, this, this place in Wisconsin that did cutting, like cutting of steaks and meat and also fulfillment. So it was like a one-stop shop where we could cut our meat and then ship it out. Um, and so again, I was trying to do hobbies. So everything was like going to be outsourced. Um, and I had already made, uh, I think that was it that maybe I had made a contact with the people who like potentially could build the website Uh, and I also had, um, a guy, a buddy of mine, Bobby, uh, who runs this design firm soldier, um, who I had been talking about, like building out the brand of ButcherBox. And so all three of those people I had like been like, okay, I'll give you pieces of the company and you can like work and, um, you know, let's, let's move this forward. Uh, but Bobby's first task was like, go find anyone who's written about grass fed beef on Twitter and put them on a list. And then we'll send that list to people in the Philippines and we'll like try to find their websites and, um, try to email them and try to get them, you know, like, Hey, I think we had some questions at that point. Uh, then it became like, go stand outside of whole foods and ask people if they know the price of, uh, ground beef or do they buy grass fed beef or like, would they buy eight pounds of meat delivered to their house? And, uh, you know, really quickly, we learned when I started, it was just going to be grass-fed beef. Uh, we learned that it was like way too much beef to be sending to people's house. So people wanted, so we, when, when we launched our Kickstarter in September, we launched with beef, yep. chicken, and pork. Uh, we now okay. have a lot more than that. But um, yeah, so mm-hmm. yeah, it was just kind of like further validate the, the concept, uh, see if the concept yeah. works. Uh, we, we did use that like lean startup canvas where you've got like the, you know, you, you come up with a hypothesis and then you try to figure out the one thing that would kill that hypothesis and just ran with that. And um, yeah. And we ended up launching our Kickstarter in September of, um, yeah, September, that was like September 9th or something. Um, okay. So we spent, three and a half months getting all the pieces together. Bobby then went back to school. I found this other guy, Mike Philby, who who stepped in and, um, and we got going. And things took off like immediately. First day we blew through our goal and
0: wow. um, knew we had something. Yeah, let's dive into the Kickstarter campaign. So for those who contributed, what were the incentives, the perks, and why do you think it succeeded so well? so i mean the first perk was a mooing cow for a dollar
1: where we sent you like a like a mp3 file of a cow mooing which is funny we got a couple hundred of those that was pretty sweet wow. as well as like t-shirt and then we had uh like a one month box three months six month, 12 month. and then we did two um five thousand dollar like uh meat for the year and then um we'll fly out and throw you a party. Um, and the idea wow. with those is, like, I could call some people and, like, try to try to sell. We sold two of those. Um, okay. So, at the time, this is 2015. I don't know if this is true today, but um, the hunch was that Kickstarter was gameable. And, w- w- mm-hmm. like, and, uh, you know, I could talk for a whole hour about this, but, like, Two-sided marketplaces, sure. there tends to be arbitrages like at certain points. And at, at, in 2015 yeah. was a point where it seemed like there was a way to game Kickstarter where you could like set yourself out uh, ahead ahead of everyone. And it seemed to be circled mm-hmm. around this verified badge. It was like once you got Kickstarter verified, you showed up on the homepage, you showed up at the top of the food page, you were in the emails. Uh-huh. And like so it became we basically tried to, you know, we watched Kickstarter. We worked with a, a consultant as well, and we tried to reverse engineer. How would you get the Kickstarter verified badge? And it seemed like it was it was based on like speed of hitting your goal. How fat like mm-hmm. the velocity of people coming in. And then we also like I weaseled my way to one of the co-founders of Kickstarter and reached out to him and he actually wrote back and like I let him know that we we're doing a campaign and all that stuff. And so what wow. we did is we were like, we need to hit our goal like immediately. And so the weeks prior, we were lining up. And I think these tactics still work, by the way. We were lining up mm-hmm. all the people, including the $5,000 people, so that when we launched, we're like, hey, we just launched. And, and I, I wrote to people and I was like, we're trying to game Kickstarter here. So if you, <laughs> the best thing you could do is buy what you're going to buy within the first hour of us launching. So that is like... Rawr. And that's what happened. Yeah. We uh, we launched within a couple of hours. We were uh, we hit our goal uh, within 48 hours. We were verified, and um, wow. and then what happens, which is beautiful, is there's so many people on Kickstarter that your prod and your project's now getting eyeballs that it starts to mm. be not just your network. The hardest part about Kickstarter is you're yeah. trying to like get your network to like buy stuff, which is. Hard yeah. to do. Like, you know, after a while it's just kind of like, all right, guys, like please f- buy again, which it doesn't work. So we yeah. brought in we, we went out to raise twenty-five thousand dollars in pre-sales. We we wanted yeah. more, but we said twenty-five thousand so we could blow through our goal. Uh and we yeah. raised two hundred fifteen thousand in pre-sales in thirty days. Wow. And about fifty thousand of that was like people that we knew, and everyone everything else was just like randos who were on Kickstarter. Um, <laughs> wow. And then we launched the website the day after Kickstarter ended uh, and just went to town. Shipped out the boxes. Like shipped out the, the w- yeah. I think we had 1100, um, 1, like month one boxes, including the three month, six month and 12 month. Um, and then called all of them. Hey, how's it going? It was this guy, Nikki, Nikki Graham. Nicky Graham. <laughs> he called every single freaking person. How's it going? This is Nikki Graham. Just I'm trying to check in, see how your box is doing. By the way, we're going to do this as a subscription, and we would love to have you as a member. Are you interested? We got 35% mm. of people to line up. And so right away, we had about 400 subscribers, which the, I, I had said at the very beginning, if we have 1,000 subscribers, this is a sexy business. And so we started yeah. with 400 and we were making like a, you know, $20 to $30 profit on each, each person. So <laughs> you're starting with $10,000 in profit, which, you know, then Huge. goes to pay a couple of interns and like things started
0: rolling. Um, yeah. That's how we got going. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far around Mike's entrepreneurial journey. I'd like to pause and say thank you to this episode's mid-break sponsor, Yamazaki. At Yamazaki Home, they've set out to solve the biggest challenges in your home today. For over 100 years, their goal has been to make products that make you smile, that make you happy. They have products for each and every room of your home for both functionality and aesthetic, especially if you're looking for storage within any room, that's kitchen, bathroom, closet, even your jewelry collection. Yamazaki has that solution. So with both quality and affordable prices, I highly recommend Yamazaki Home. And Make sure to check them out at theyamazakihome.com and the link's in this description. And I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the episode. What did the supply chain look like once uh, you guys officially launched Kickstarter Um, this is nationwide. Did you guys contact local farmers in those regions? What did that supply chain overall look like? Yeah.
1: So when we started, well, it was 48 States. Um, we've, we still don't ship to Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, although someday we will. Um, when we started, uh, we really were centralized around this, um, this, this cutter, this like cutting facility that was attached to the distribution facility. So we were using their farm contacts. So they, they had, um, you know pig farmers in Iowa uh, cattle farmers in Iowa and the chicken was coming from I think Virginia or Georgia I think let's let's call it Virginia um, yeah. and so you know we didn't really have any relationships with any farmers it was more like utilizing what they're doing and then making sure that our spec like our specifications were were there so we wanted grass-fed, grass-finished, which is like never been fed, you know, grains and whatever. We wanted uh, uh, what they call never-ever antibiotics or hormones. So animals that have never been administered an antibiotic or a hormone. We um, yeah. and so we we basically built out a suite of products that we thought would sell, and um, the that facility ended up purchasing all of it. And at the time, like we were getting charged an arm and a leg for, um, Mm. product and we Mm. did not care. We cared, but we did not care because that wasn't like the, the primary thing that wasn't the primary problem. And again, I think this is like important for entrepreneurs is like, if you focus on all of the problems at the same time, you can't focus on any of the problems. And so like. Like, we knew that we were overpaying for chicken that was going in the box. We had a, a box, it was $129 price point. We knew we were overpaying for the chicken. We knew our profit was lower than it should be. But instead of worrying about that, we were just like, that doesn't matter. Like, just go sell more and eventually yeah. it'll matter. Um, and so when we got to about 6,000 yeah. subscribers, uh, basically a year after launching, then I hired somebody who actually knew what he was doing. And that was this guy, Mike Billings, who was, um, uh, had retired. He ran meat and seafood at BJ's, which is like, like Costco, uh, on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, he ran a meat, meat and seafood there for like 20 years. And, um, he was bored and wanted to go back to work. And, uh, he really was the one who helped me shape this business from like, um, Uh, something that's like, uh, Oh, these, all these claims are like really important. And like, we want to provide this meat that has X, Y, Z claim to figuring out, like, how do you scale that program? Because if it's going to be a big business, you need to learn. It can't just be like farmer Joe's, you know, cows. It needs to, you need to figure out the whole scalability issue.
0: Uh, and he helped, he helped do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds, that was a bold statement on, I mean, how his responsibility resulted in the success oh, yeah. or most of it. So what, what did his duties look like then? Did he leverage his contacts from prior? Yeah. Or what, yeah, what yeah, yeah. 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 He just like? called
1: everyone he knew. He, he, so he just started yeah. running procurement at that point. Like we, I, we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, we, we, at that point had moved <laughs> from this one facility cutting everything. We found another facility that to start like helping with, uh, with stuff. Um, but we didn't know. Like we, we knew nothing. We were just, you know. I, we, we knew, we hope, we, we knew that the product yeah. that we were providing people was up to the specifications that we were looking for. But we were like overpaying. Mm-hmm. Like I remember Mike came in and he's like, he looks at our stuff. He's like, wow, you guys are paying a lot for chicken. I think I can get three pounds for the same price that you're, you're buying a pound for. And it was like, mm-hmm. great like so now all of a sudden our customer who had been with us and these are early adopters who are like willing to put up with a lot instead of getting one pound of chicken breast is now getting three pounds of chicken breast and so we were just able to provide a better and better Mm. value to the to the customer um Mm. because we had a buyer who actually knew what he was doing and and i think like i think you know one thing for entrepreneurs um One of our core values is relentless improvement. And I think with a core value of relentless improvement, which is this idea that you can always improve. um, One of the freeing things is that you can start like small. You can start with not all the things together. You can start with like, oh, okay, we're going to lose money on this, but that's okay because if we do this, we'll be fine. And Mm -hmm. um, our customers and our employees and really everyone has just like uh, I, I think it's a, a a real benefit. Is like w- we can we can start and just get something going, and then just know that we are going to relentlessly
0: improve that thing all the way. Mm, I love that. I'm gonna actually like mark that. That's a, such a good clip. Um, but kind of tying back into your your teacher organic virality that you had, and also kind of the launch of the Kickstarter campaign. What marketing worked well for Butcher Box? Mm-hmm. It's a pretty new concept at the yeah. time, so. What did you guys do? Yeah.
1: So the concept of Butcher Box was not totally new. If you think about it, at that point, um, 2015, uh, meal kit companies were really big. So Blue Apron uh, was the big one. And then there was HelloFresh. And uh, there, there was apparently like 125 Blue Apron lookalikes out there. Um, and yeah. so the, the concept of somebody getting a box and getting recipes was actually like fairly common. In fact, the concept of getting a box and not even being able to say, like not even being able to choose what's inside is like people were like used to that because of Blue Apron. And so our initial launch, because we didn't have any money, we couldn't hold inventory. So I couldn't guess like, oh, we're going to sell 100 ribeyes this week. Let me hold 400 ribeyes and that that lasts me a month because every ribeye is going to cost me $15 and that's like $6,000 that I don't have sitting on a shelf. Um, And so what we did is we did a curated box and it was like the butcher's selection where you chose beef, beef and chicken or beef, chicken and pork. And then we sent you what we thought you would like. And we what we did is we like uh, we put in about five different cuts of meat in there. Uh, It was about eight to 12 pounds. Um, we put in uh, recipe cards that would like teach you how to cook things or sent you to places on the website. And yeah. that was the first go round. Uh, it took about mm. two years until we were like, we had enough customers and enough people complaining that like, they didn't want us to choose what they got where we launched custom box, mm. which was like where people could choose. But early on, even in the Kickstarter campaign, we had been, as I told you, Bobby was reaching out to people who had mentioned grass-fed beef on Twitter. And the two groups that really re- did a lot of grass-fed beef um, talking, were well, the, the one group in particular was like the Paleo Whole30 crowd. People that are eating yeah. like uh, cavemen, uh, like our ancestors did, and trying to clean up their diet and eat like, eat clean food. And we reached out to those people uh, during the Kickstarter campaign or before the Kickstarter campaign to ask for their support of the Kickstarter campaign. And there was one doctor in particular named Chris Cresser, who is a great guy, um, who tweeted about us and was like, um, gosh, I should find this tweet instead of just anyway. Um, it was something to the line of like, this is a cool company. Um, you know, he, they launched this Kickstarter and selling grass fed beef. And we saw a flurry of activity. Um, mm. And again, this was by a flurry, I mean like we had like seven sales from that that Twitter thing. And th- again, this is like the smallest yeah. signal can be so big. And yeah. we were like, that's going to work. And so what we did for the first two and a half years is we reached out to anybody in the paleo influencer like space. And th- yeah. actually Thrive Market had really like already run this playbook. So Thrive had already asked all of these influencers from Tim Ferriss to Mark Sisson Mm -hmm. to Whole30 to, you know, all these people had asked all of them, Hey, can you help me? Can you help us like get the word out? Um, and so we just basically found the people that were writing about Thrive, uh, and then asked them if they would write about ButcherBox. And the, the, the pitch, which we, was, I think, pretty elegant, was at the time what we did is we reached out to them. We're like, hey, we're putting these recipe cards in our box. We're a grass-fed beef company. We need, um, we need recipes to send to our customers. Do you mind if we use this recipe? And we'll, of course, put your name and your website on it. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. And they're like, by the way, what's Butcher Box? Like, what do you do? And we're like, oh, funny. You should ask us what we do. Would you like to promote us? And by the, we can't pay up front, but we can pay your residual on the customers that you bring in. And they're like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. And that's how we started. Mm. And um, uh, we really ran the influencer thing, which, by the way, I don't think you could do today. I think it's like you, you have to find a different marketing tactic if you're going to start this company today but so expensive. Yeah, yeah, we ran that influencer thing to like 50 million dollars before we touched anything wow. else. Like it was just wow. you know, a lot of times you're like trying to find that signal, trying to find that hole with some oil in it and once you do, don't go find mm. don't go looking for any more oil until that thing is like you've got you're you're fracking every last drop out of it. Um and so that, that's what yeah. we did. We just focused on that, started building out a team, like I want every influencer in this arena that just get them all, get them all, get them all. Deep in the programs, mm. who's who's promoting what? Hey, we have a new, you know, every couple of weeks, it was like a new launch, a new promotion, get as many influencers promoting as possible, build yeah. the
0: system, go. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to dive into that a little bit more. Um, when you would launch like new products, for example, were you sending influencers product and they would what kind of content were they creating yeah kind of uh, so these paleo we did based? we
1: did send them product if they asked if they didn't we were happy to not but most of them most of the good yeah. ones are like all right well send me what you've got and we were happy to do yeah. that because our product performs really well it eats really well it's like awesome um mm-hmm. uh and then and then it was like a variety of what works so um you know some people are mm-hmm. like oh i'll, I'll post on social media and it's like oh, it's not really working or like oh I'll include you in like my weekly roundup or it's like all these topics and then like by the way you can buy from ButcherBox. It's like oh, that doesn't really work either. What worked for us was a dedicated email that was like yeah. this is ButcherBox. Buy ButcherBox. Here's a here's a, um, here's a promotion like you know sign up today and get free bacon in your first box and $25 off or whatever. Now our Now our yeah. promotions are like a lot more aggressive than that. Um, and then, so what worked was dedicated email blast and then, uh, seven day later, last chance email. That was Mm -hmm. what we were trying to push those influencers for constantly. Email blast seven day, email blast seven day. And not everyone did it. Some people are like, Oh, just do social media. It's like, okay, cool. Like that's not going to work well. We're trying to help you make money and that's not going to help you make money. But if you want to do that, that's what you do. Nowadays, so the, you know, and I always preface this with like, like a lot of Butcher boxes was timing, like we got lucky. Um, nowadays, I don't think you could run that um, that program. I don't think it would work. Yeah, because a lot of those influencers now want to be paid up front. It's like twenty thousand dollars to send an email. So if you're like with no money, uh, it'd be very hard to like get going.
0: Yeah, I feel like today it's very rare on performance basis. It's it's rather just upfront yep. based on the media kit one fee. Yep. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Looking at Butcher Box in the past like couple of years, you guys have scaled from I'm not sure revenue, what it's looking like this year, but 400, 500, almost like 600 million. What do you think were those key pivotal pivotal points for the turning of Butcher Box that kind of resulted in the the jump in the past few years? Well, it's actually been a slowdown in the
1: past few years. Um. So really, it like we started in 15, Kickstarter year we did about 300 or 500 grand, then 5 million, mm-hmm. then 35 million, then 105 million, then 225, then 450, and so that ramp up was like roop, really, really, really quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, the COVID year was 220 to 450, um, mm-hmm. and then 2021 was uh, 450 to 550. It was like the first year that we didn't wow. like d- at least double the business. And, and then last year was 550 to 557. So like okay. barely any growth. And this year will be the first down year that we've had as a company. Uh, and, you know, I think like there's lots of reasons for that macro uh, environment wise, as well as like we as a company have had struggles like we grew so quickly. It's taken a bit to digest and like learn how to operate in a larger company and all those things. Um, yeah. Yeah uh but yeah no so so the the inflections like i the the best the best analogy i've heard on like how things change is um teams of people change when every time you multiply by 3 so one person startup different than 3 people 3 people different yeah. than 9 people 9 different than 27 27 to 81 and so if you know where you yeah. are in that in that right so if you're If you're like a 15-person startup, you really need to be thinking about what 27 means. And 27 is like hierarchy, right? So like when you're nine people, there's no hierarchy. It's like everyone reports to me and it's like, cool. When you're 27, it's too many people. So now you need to have like your your cabinet or your executive team or whatever. And then you need people reporting to those people. And then from 27 to 81, it's like you can't have everyone doing whatever they want anymore. Like when you start, it's like, hey, just do whatever you think is best. At 81 it's like you can't do that because jesse over here needs this done and this person over here needs this done so now we're just gonna all yell until like it just becomes a cluster and then that changes again at a, you know, we're not at 240 but i can see where you know we we have we're in this awkward adolescent stage where um it's really hard to get stuff done um and i think mm. uh i think 500 million dollar companies have trouble with um At least from what I've read and talked to other people is like, it's very classic where you try to bring in a bunch of people to like help professionalize and then how do you digest them with the entrepreneurs at the same time because you don't want to lose that Mm. like, you know, uh, entrepreneurial spirit as
0: well. Yeah, definitely. What does the the work culture look like? I mean, you guys are you said around two hundred and forty, but where is everyone working? Remote? In office? What does that setup look like?
1: Yeah, we're about sixty percent located in Boston and forty percent remote. Um, we have uh, we we also have two dry ice facilities. We have one in Oklahoma and one in Iowa, uh, where we produce okay. our own dry ice. Um, and um, yeah, we're we're a uh, we're a. Uh, I guess what the, what do they call it? Like a hybrid, uh, environment. Hybrid. I go to the office yeah. every day. Um, I really like being in an office. Uh, my executive team is in the office, so there is a mm-hmm. Boston heartbeat. Um, yeah. but we're, we, are we have actually been surprised at the lack of attendance in the office. We actually took on like a huge office and it's pretty empty, uh, which has been interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, And, uh, yeah, the culture, like, I think one of the most important things about a company is uh, one of the most important jobs of CEO is setting the culture of the company and we live by our cultural values. So very early on, we wrote down like the, the, the company values, the, the things that we thought would help people be successful at the company. I talked about relentless Mm. improvement. There's also being customer obsessed. There's being accountable. Uh, and then, uh, humility or humble and uh authenticity which is like how you show yeah. up every day and like what are are you willing to do and say the hard things and are you willing to be humble like realize that yeah. you, this is not a um this is like i you know people are like oh my god like butcher box has got grown to be such a big company and it's like i don't really think that was me um, I think ButcherBox wanted to be something a lot bigger and I am along for the ride. And uh the yeah. the people that really succeed at the company feel similarly. Like we can all be proud of the job we're doing, but also recognize that this is yeah. like a pretty special thing that we're uh held on to.
0: I love it. I love it. As we slowly wrap up here, um, looking at Butcher Box today and say like a, a listener were to purchase, what does that mean? consumer POV look like so they go online they place an order for a box how long is the process what does it look like from your side as well
1: yeah so um, you would go to butcherbox.com and you would choose what type of box you want most people choose the custom box Um, and within the custom box you can choose a variety of cuts and then you can choose like deals and specials on top of it Uh, your first box, we generally give a whole bunch of promotions, whether it's like free ground beef for life. I think right now it's like free wings and $50 off depending on when you air it, it, it'll change. Um, and, uh, so we track the time between when your credit card swipes and when it, it delivers to your door. Uh, on average, which is not a great way to look at it, but is one way that we look at it on average, you'll get your box within 3.4 days. Um, that's from swipe to like it being delivered. Um, but some zip codes are different. It's, that's a whole body of work. In fact, like we need to do a much better job of like being like, you're going to get your box on this date because people tend to be worried about a frozen box of meat and like, when's it going to show up? And am I going to be home and all those things, then that's just like work to be done. Um, but yeah. what you'll get is, um, so we believe fundamentally that uh, meat, the way that meat is raised in this country is broken and needs to be uh, disrupted. And yeah. so we have gone out and we have found uh, companies and people who are raising animals right, paying farmers well, treating the environment well, um, and treating like the workers in the supply chain well as well. And so yeah. we ha- we obsess and I-, I could I could talk for an hour about like you want to talk about salmon and like wild caught salmon and what our salmon is and why it's important or you want to talk about beef or you want to talk like, I could talk forever for sure. about because we're like literally obsessed about bringing you the highest quality stuff uh, and the intersection of that with treating the animal super well maintaining a great value for the customer, making sure that the farmer Mm. can like live on the land and provide for their family. Like those things are the only things that will Like those are the things that matter to, to make, um, to, to change the way animals are being raised. Um, we're about to now announce, which I'm super excited about, uh, in February, um, that, um, well, I guess we're going to push, it's kind of already been there, but, um, Mm. (laughs) <laughs> all of our products are third-party verified uh humane certified which means that Amazing. like some there's been a third party that's made sure that that animal was treated with the utmost of respect and care no other company can say that um yeah. and i think that's like i think that's really important to to, to people not to mention, you're gonna get a price that's cheaper than Whole Foods, certainly cheaper than the other people that are out there, whether it's Omaha or Good Chop or Good Rancher or any, anywhere else, uh, higher quality, um, better delivery service, better customer experience, like the whole thing. We have all of that, uh, but ultimately what I'm trying to do is to change the way that meat is consumed in this country. And if we can do that, that is such a massive, massive prize not really financially. I mean, you know, the money will come if you build a great business, but I I don't care nearly as much about that as I do about like driving change in an industry that is desperate for change.
0: Yeah. Huge. I love it. Well, as we conclude the episode, I like to wrap up each one with this. Um, If you can share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, something you've learned, regret along the way, I and mean, you've shared so many nuggets. What would you say that would be?
1: Yeah. So um, I have this uh, saying, uh, which is your um, or this whatever around head trash. Um, mm. I think that yeah, as you grow in, in business, the more successful you are, the more you need to be in tuned with uh, your head trash, which is all the negative stories and all the negativity that's in your brain. Everybody has it. Um, and understanding yours and, um, a, a, and how it can hijack you and how it can keep you from feeling happy. It can keep you from feeling content in the moment you're in. It can keep you from like truly feeling like your, your emotions and feeling joy. Um, I'm a big yeah. believer in the Enneagram, uh, which is one way of looking at like, how do you separate and become unconscious? Um, but really mm-hmm. just becoming curious about yourself. Is by Mm. far the most important, like people who come to talk to me and they're like, oh, I want like a marketing campaign. Like ultimately it always turns to like, well, like how do you feel about yourself? Like, are you taking care of yourself? Are you doing things for your brain? Are you, you know, treating yourself with care? Because ultimately those are the things
0: that make the Mm. difference of whether you're successful or not. I love it. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me, and to the listeners out there, make sure to check out ButcherBox at ButcherBox.com. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms, and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.